this fifth Sunday of Lent. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. But not in an effort to make today all about Desmond or or us, but I I did as I was writing the sermon this week. um, I did say, you know, I'll take this opportunity to kind of, you know, Desmond's going to sleep through it, I'm sure. um, But this is kind of an opportunity to write a sermon on the day of my son's baptism, a sermon that um, I hope he hears, and he'll hear from me later on in life. Um, So today's sermon, I kind of wrote it through the lens of my son, Uh, words that I would say to him uh, based on the scripture we're looking at uh, as we're going through the passion narrative of Christ in the season of Lent. So, you know, uh, if you don't like the sermon, it's great. It's it's not for you. It's for my son. But I hope you'll... uh, You'll hear an encouraging word. Uh, I think it's uh, something we all need to hear in our Christian walk, I hope. Um, So listen in on my sermon to my son. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns. And and they put it on his head. And they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has claimed to be the Son of God. Now when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you, the power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no power over me unless it had not been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be king sets himself against the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at the place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, Here is your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but the emperor. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As uh, Rebecca and I thought about our son's life, uh, they give you plenty of time to think about it in those long nine months of preparation. We thought about our, joy, our dreams and our hopes and our joy uh, of him 
And already before today, we had prayed and committed him to Christ and, and to Christ's kingdom. We prayed that he would love God beyond anything else in his life, his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that he would love his neighbor as himself. We prayed that he would be kind. I especially prayed that. I, I felt like sometimes kindness is lacking in our world, and sometimes we don't talk about kindness enough. And if he could be kind, that he could stay in the love of Christ. We pray that he would, as a good Nazarene, stand and love the poor and the oppressed with everything that he had. We prayed these things, and as I was looking at the scripture today, I was reminded of the fact, but how will he do this? By his own power and strength? No, no. He needs a power greater than himself to do these things. Raising children, we, we often don't talk about power. We often don't talk about power in the church too well. Um, I think we feel uncomfortable when we talk about power because in the church we talk about humility. We talk about servanthood. We talk about turning the other cheek. We don't often talk about power. But I guess where I'm going this morning is to say that I hope my son grows up to be a powerful person powerful person in the kingdom of God. You know, seeing a child, uh, male or female, raising them up and telling them, you need to turn the other cheek. When someone offends you, you need to forgive. Don't give in. And I, I think they struggle with, isn't that weak, Dad? Isn't, I remember growing up as a kid and I felt weak. I felt like I couldn't be cool. I couldn't play like the other kids play. I couldn't beat somebody up if they got onto me, you know, throw rocks at somebody. Uh, I was told not to do that stuff, and I felt weak. And so I want to tell my son this morning, on the day of his baptism, what we are baptizing him into is not weakness. It is power. But it is a different kind of power altogether than this world knows. And I think we see that so painfully clear this morning in the Scripture, in chapter 19, as we look at Christ and his passion on this fifth Sunday of Lent. We, we've been going through the Gospel of John for the past few months since Christmas time, if you've been with us. And last week, we looked at the first half of the interview with Pilate. And just as a reminder, who Pilate is. Pilate is uh, pretty much the governor of Judea. He's the Roman governor over all the Jewish area, right? And so Pilate was the most powerful man in Rome. He, he had control of the military. He had control over the courts. He had control over taxation. He was the representative of the emperor in that area. Whatever he said goes in that Roman area. Um, and he, he knew he, his job was to control the Jewish people. He had to pacify them. The reason he's actually in Jerusalem over the Passover, he doesn't live in Jerusalem. He lives uh, uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. He lives in Caesarea. And he has a big palace there. But he's in Jerusalem over at the Passover. Why? Because what is the Passover celebrating? A time that God freed the Jews from the power of another empire. Pharaoh and the Egyptian empire. So the Passover uh, celebration is one that the, the, Roman, uh, the Romans they need to keep an eye on, make sure the Jews don't get out of hand. Pilate would also know about all of the messianic expectations of the Jewish people. It was his job to know. So he had to make sure that he had to pacify them. They wouldn't get out of hand. And so he knew about their expectations that one would come to deliver them from the likes of Rome. 
Another reminder from last week, what we talked about, as we look at these texts in John, these aren't just steps lead up to the crucifixion. Sometimes we read it like that, oh, these are just the necessary details. What Jesus says, and actually John chapter 17, is that this is revealing the glory of his Father. How is here, we're going to look at today, revealing the glory of the Father? That in all of these texts, these are revealing who God is to us. These aren't just details along the road. That here in chapter 19, even in the suffering and the pain that we see, God revealed to us through Jesus. We need to take that seriously. What are we learning about God and his kingdom here in these texts? So let us look, starting in chapter 19. And we left off immediately that the crowd had just chosen Barabbas, the bandit, over the good shepherd, Jesus. And here in chapter 19, we open with Christ being flogged. Flogging uh, was always accompanied before crucifixion. Flogging on its own could stand as its own punishment. You may just be flogged and released, and that's probably what Pilate was hoping would happen here, that he would flog Jesus, that he would be humiliated, that uh, you know, they would see that he's not a threat, and that he would be released. But flogging was always done before crucifixion. It, it was an incredibly painful and torturous experience that we can roughly imagine in our modern culture today. It was used with a short whip, it would have uh, pieces of metal or bone at the ends of the short whip. Uh, it was intended to both break the skin on each whip, but also uh, present deep contusions and bruising into the body. Um, to give you an idea of how painful and destructive to the body it would be, that they used it primarily so that the person would be weakened, so that they would not last long on the cross. Uh, that's how much strength it took out of the person to be flogged. Uh, the Jewish law only allowed someone to be flogged a maximum of 40 times. Um, beyond 40 times, this is the idea of cruel, the maximum punishment they could do as Jews was 40 lashes in the flogging. But the Romans had no such law, that they would flog until they saw fit. Their only goal was to make sure that the, the person could still carry the cross who was being executed. And we see that the Roman officials even went beyond that as Jesus could not carry his cross. Jesus here at the opening of chapter 19 begins his suffering. Suffering that leads to the crucifixion. And the, the soldiers, after they get done flogging him, they take a crown of thorns, much like the one we have standing here, and they place it on his head. And they give him a, a purple robe, purple being the color of royalty. They dress him up as a king, but a king of suffering. They even say to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And John is the only gospel where he doesn't tell us that they're mocking him. He just simply tells us that they say, Hail, King of the Jews. And John wants us to see the painful irony that they may have believed that this was the King of the Jews and that they were just humiliating him. But for us to see that even here in the crowning of the crown of thorns, even in the wearing of the purple robe, that this truly is the crowning of the true King of kings and the Lord of lords. And John also, unlike the other Gospels, John uh, makes it seem that Jesus wears the crown of thorns and the purple robe for the rest of the proceeding, that Jesus is dressed in this royal garb for the entire process of the conviction. 
Jesus is dressed as the true king. John wants us to see the painful irony that the Romans could not see and that the Jewish leaders could not see. That this is how the king of God's kingdom is crowned. No other king in the world would ever be crowned with a crown of thorns. No other king would ever suffer a flogging. But here we see the, that Christ bears the pain and the suffering that we inflict on him and is crowned truly the king of all. Pilate brings him out and saying he finds no case against the man uh, that if they want to crucify him, they should take him themselves and crucify him. We need to understand kind of the power politics at play here. Pilate's not really trying to be nice. Pilate is really saying, I've humiliated this, this messianic person and there's no reason for me to continue and so you'd take him to release him. And the Jewish people, they say, the Jewish leaders, and we've talked about that uh, last week, that this isn't the entire Jewish people, this is uh, religious leaders at the time. They say, no, no, crucify him. And he says, if you want to crucify him, take him yourself and crucify him. He says this because he knows he's toying with them politically. He knows that they actually have no power to crucify anyone. That the Jewish authority, the only people that were legally allowed to crucify was the Romans at this time. So he knows they are dependent on him to do what they wish. But the Jews, they're kind of, the Jewish leaders are one step ahead of Pilate. They say, oh, yes, but we have a law. And the law says that he must die because he is claimed to be a son of God. They reply to this not because Pilate's overly concerned about the law. He's not overly concerned about what the Torah says about blasphemy. They say this because they know a part of Pilate's job is, as governor of the area, he has to respect their laws. That is one thing that the emperor decrees that the governors, the Roman governors of the areas must respect the local laws. And the, so basically they're saying, ha ha, we have you because we'll get you in trouble if you don't obey and listen to our laws, that he needs to die. We talked a little about last week, uh, the Jewish leaders have already tried to stone Jesus, and they failed, and so now they must have him crucified by the room. This also worries Pilate. They get under Pilate's skin here, as we see in the next verse, that he get, goes back in afraid because they say he's claiming to be a son of God. There's only one son of God in the Roman Empire, and that's Caesar. And so here we see the Jewish leaders. They get under Pilate's skin. They are pushing Pilate's buttons exactly. And so he, Pilate goes back and in with Jesus, and he is afraid now more than ever. And we see that in the question, where are you from, Jesus? Who are you, he's saying. And we, who have been reading the Gospel of John, know the answer where Jesus is from, because he's been saying it over and over again, I am from God the Father. But he doesn't give Pilate an answer. And Pilate comes to him, and I think this is just the, the peak of their conversation, uh, Pilate comes to him and says, are you not going to talk to me? Don't you know I have the power here, Jesus? Don't you know I have the power to crucify you or to release you? And you're not going to even beg me for your life? You're not going to grovel at my feet? And Jesus, I'll paraphrase Jesus here. Jesus says, Pilate, you really don't understand what's going on. You may think you have the power here, but you have no power over me. Basically what Jesus is saying is not that God granted him divine power. Jesus is basically saying the only reason you have any power in this situation is because you are playing a role. 
that you don't have power over me. In fact, we who have been reading the Gospel of John should remember in John chapter 17, Jesus tells right before his hour, he says, the Father has given me authority over what? All people. And I'm going now to glorify the Father. The world, Pilate couldn't see the authority of Jesus. The Jewish leaders could not see the authority of Jesus. But the question before us in this conversation with Pilate, can we see the power of Jesus even here in his suffering? Pilate goes on in verse 12. We see that he wants to release Jesus uh, maybe because he sees no threat from Jesus as a messianic leader. Uh, but he goes out, and, the, and he doesn't even say it out loud, but the Jewish leaders, again, are kind of one step ahead, and they realize Pilate's wanting to release Jesus, but they don't want him to. And so, again, they push Pilate's button. They say, if you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Again, there's one person that Pilate answers to, and it's the emperor. There's one person that they can make Pilate afraid kind of push his button against the emperor. If everyone who claims to be king sets himself against the emperor. And they know exactly where to press because now if Pilate releases this man and he causes problems, Pilate himself will be on trial for sedition. They are manipulating Pilate expertly here. It is, a, it is kind of a political battle back and forth. Pilate doesn't want to give in to their demands, but now they are, they are pushing Pilate into a corner. And so Pilate gives in. He brings Jesus out, stands before them, and he sits down in the place of judgment. And he says, here is your king. The Jewish leaders can't stand it. They refuse him. They say, crucify him. And Pilate kind of pushes it in their face. Do you want me to crucify your king? And in doing this, Pilate in himself, he's kind of taking back his power and he's trying to push them to say, here's your Messiah. Here's your messianic hopes. Here's your hopes of being out of the power of Rome. Do you want me to kill him and crucify him? And they affirm, yes, the crowd cries out, crucify him. And here we see the depth. The most tragic part probably of this entire scripture that God's people, the ones he chose, that he redeemed from the Egyptian empire, the one that God wanted to be their king, their leader, God's chosen people who were never to be under the power of any empire, any pharaoh, that God has brought them out into freedom. And now those same people cry out and refuse God altogether in Jesus and say, we have no king but the emperor. Do you see where, from where they started from, leaving the bondage of Egypt and Pharaoh, and now they are placing themselves back into bondage over the, under the Roman Empire and Caesar. Why? Because they are refusing God's gift in Jesus Christ. They are refusing God's kingship in Christ. And in some sense, Pilate kind of wins this political battle because now he has pacified the Jewish people that they have given up their rights to any messianic hope. They, they have forfeited their faith completely in political expediency simply to crucify Jesus Christ. The question of Pilate 
bothers me. Don't you realize, Jesus, I have the power? It should bother you. I'm a little worried, though, that one day as my son grows up, he's going to hear that question repeated to him. Desmond, don't you realize we hold the power here? Desmond, don't you realize this is what power looks like? The world is going to say to my son, Desmond, if you want power, come over here. Desmond, if you want some control, if you want some freedom, come over here and experience true power. This is what the world is going to say. The pilots of this world are going to say, Desmond, don't you know that I have the power? The question of power in our world is really the question of the gospel. Who holds the power? And really, what does power look like? What is true power? Pilate obviously can't see it. Is a young man filled with hate walking through a school with an AR-15 killing children a powerful man? No. Is it a nation that can destroy the world 15 times over with its nuclear arsenal? Is that what true power is? No. Many people in our culture think that you can get on an app and, and flip through and just with a few swipes of your thumb, you can find a new sexual partner for the night. Is that power? No. In our culture, so much money is power. The more dollar bills you have in the bank, the more you can make people do what you want. Sometimes, unfortunately, even in the church, will dance however they want to dance if they'll just give a bigger donation Money in our culture so many times is power. Is the ability to kill an unborn child whenever we want to, is that true power? Is the KKK burning crosses in front yards and terrorizing the African-American community for so many years, is that what power looks like? Is power uh, the ability to never let anybody hurt you? Is power the, the ability to always to win an argument, always to be right? Hopefully you've said no to many of these, but this is the way power is thought of. It's the way power is articulated. This is the power that our world seeks after. This is the power of Pilate. Pilate was the man that could tax people as much as he wanted. He could skew the courts wherever he wanted. He could kill people whenever he wanted. And yet I hope as we look at the scripture today, as, as my son grows up, he sees that actually that's not even power. If anything, that is a dark, twisted reflection of what true power is. And that we can only know that through Jesus Christ standing here. Because by these standards of power, the world's power, then Jesus Christ really was powerless. Jesus Christ grew up poor. He had very little money to his name. He never pursued or owned property. He never took a wife. He never built a family for himself. He never pastored a mega church. He was happy with 12 disciples following his way. He was often hated and reviled, called a drunkard, told he had an evil spirit. Christ never struck anyone. He, he never harmed anyone. 
never incited violence. And in fact, the one time one of his disciples had a sword with them and started attacking somebody, remember in the garden? What did Jesus do? He said he rebuked him and then he healed the man. The world looks to Jesus and especially here in chapter 19 and the world says, that's weakness. That's, that's not what power looks like. But the question I'm asking you and I, I will ask my son as he grows up that if he can look at the man that stands there bloodied with a crown of thorns and a purple robe, I'm going to tell him, son, that is what true power looks like. In chapter 10, Jesus is talking about himself as the good shepherd. We looked at this on Ash Wednesday. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who comes, and when the wolves attack, I don't run, but I lay down my life for the sheep. That's what we should see Jesus doing here. But he compares himself to who? The thief. The thief comes to do what? To steal, kill, and destroy. Do you see how the powers to steal, kill, and destroy, the powers of this world are the powers of the enemy in whatever form that they take? These powers to kill and destroy and to make sure no one can hurt you, they are the powers of the enemy. They are the powers that bring destruction, that they may have power over people, but ultimately, they destroy us. They destroy God's good creation, and Jesus comes to save us from the thief, to save us from those powers that would seek to destroy and to take our life. Oh, they may look alluring. They may try to entice my son as he grows up, but I'm gonna say, son, don't go that way. It only leads to pain. And suffering, and death. Now, when he looks out at the, the people that seem to be maybe having a good time, say that way leads to folly. That if we base our life on the powers of this world, our lives will be small, lonely, and brittle, right? If you're always seeking to have power so that no one's ever allowed to hurt you, You'll always live in fear. Even as Christ said, if you live by the power of the sword, you're going to die by the power of the sword. If your life is based on uh, hating people, yelling at people, oh, you're going to be so lonely. You're never going to know the depths of true love. What I want to tell us this morning and what I will tell my son time and time again, though, that that is not true power, but the good news is that there is a power far greater than all of those. There is a power that is available to every man, woman, and child, no matter who they are, that can never be touched by a thief, that money can never buy, that guns cannot kill, that fear has no hold on. It is a power that even death itself bows to. That is the power of Jesus Christ. And we don't need to look much further than seeing in chapter 19 what is the true power of Christ. The power of Christ is not to avoid suffering. The power of Christ is to walk into suffering out of love for others, on behalf of others, and to give of yourself out of love for the world. The power of Christ is not getting revenge on the people that crucified him. The power of Christ is the ability to forgive those people. The power of Christ is not always uh, to be right. 
The power of Christ is not always to win arguments. The power of Christ is to walk into division and bring reconciliation. That is what Christ does. That is what power looks like. The power of Christ is never to destroy. It's always to heal. The power of Christ is to bring hope, to bring reconciliation, joy, peace. This is the power of Christ that we see not only in chapter 19, but throughout the gospel. The ultimate power of Christ is an outpouring of God's love, allowing God's love to redeem us, to sanctify us, and to work through us, even in the laying down of our life. That is true power. So let me ask you this morning, what power do you put your trust in? You see, it won't just be when he's 10 years old, it won't be just when he's 20 or 30. Hey, buddy. It'll be nearly every week. Somebody whispers in him, hey, put your trust over here. See, those people are there coming to get us. You better be careful. They'll try to play fear into his heart. I'll try to get him to trust in the powers of this world. My sermon to my son this morning is always put your trust in true power. The power of Christ that is the only power that is able to overcome sin, evil, and death. It is the only power in this world that is able to free us from the addiction to sin, free us from the addiction of ourselves, and able to free us for God's love and redemption in the world. So what power do you choose to trust in this morning? Have you committed your life to Christ? Have you said, I will only trust in the power of Christ, and do you live that out every day? If you have made that decision to trust Christ, trust the power of Christ, is that the power of your life that you see lived out? See, Christ left the Holy Spirit for us to empower us, right? So that we would not live lives that are weak, that we would not live lives in fear, that Christ left the Holy Spirit, so what? That we can be empowered to live Christ-like lives, that we can continue the work of the kingdom of God and bring others into the kingdom of God. He left the Holy Spirit to give us his power. And so when we put our trust in Christ, we should see the power of Christ enough. The early church, they really struggled with this, and this is what Paul's always working with, right? People in the Corinthians church, they're always saying, oh, the power of the Holy Spirit in me is uh, I get to speak in tongues, you know? You may have some friends that think that, right? Or as some, as some friends said, oh, the power of Christ in me is I get to prophesy and I know all mysteries and knowledge. Blah, blah, blah. And what did Paul say? That's the, that's the weak stuff. That's not the true power of Christ. The true power of Christ is the love as Christ loved to live as the Christ lived. That is the true power of Christ. That is the power I will instill in my son or seek to do so. Even Paul said this, I love it. And again, the world doesn't see it. But Paul said in chapter 12, he's talking about his own suffering. He says, Christ said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power. Do you hear it? Power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ 
may dwell in me. Do you see that? We're not, we're not just saying that with a wink. Oh, it's ironic when you're weak, you're actually being good. No, Paul's talking about here real power. That is, when the world sees weakness, when we think we are struggling, we are open to the power of Christ working in and through us. Hey, buddy. And when we open ourselves to Christ, when we, we say, you know what, I'm, we give up on ourselves. We're not powerful enough. We're not strong enough. When we, in our weaknesses, embrace our weaknesses like Paul did, he says, we actually have the real, true power of Christ. And friends, that is true power. That is the power that overcame sin, evil, and death. That is the power of Christ that is available to you. Do you realize you have that power? I mean, this isn't just a good sermon for my son. You have ability right now to have the power of Christ. You have the ability to walk into a relationship that is broken, full of hate. You have the power to bring healing and reconciliation. You have the power to go to someone who's been cast aside by this world, who seems worthless and powerless to this world, and you have the power to give them worth in Jesus Christ. You have the power to become their friend, their brother and sister. You have the power to go to someone that's suffering and to stand with them in that suffering and represent Christ to them, that God has not left them, that God is with them. That's power. You have the ability to bear one another's burdens. You have the ability to forgive people and to bear their sins as Christ has forgiven you. That's power. You have the ability to give someone hope that is hopeless. Do you see the power of Christ as available to us when we give our lives to God? He frees us from the bondage of sin, and then we are given power to work in his kingdom for grace. And salvation. Is that the power that you have in your life that you see? Hey, buddy. Let me take him for a second. Hey, buddy. You been listening? It's okay. Hopefully we're taping this. I'll play this back to you one day. Let me, let me just talk to my son for a little bit. Desmond, as you grow up, I wish I could protect you. I wish I could keep you from harm, that you would never suffer, that you'd never be afraid, but I can't do that. I won't always be there. And in this world, it will make you afraid, that you will be hurt. I don't know how it'll start. Maybe it'll be someone at school. Maybe you'll get pushed down. Maybe this life will push you down. And you'll be tempted to look for ways to get power. People look to all sorts of things. Drugs and alcohol. Violence. Hatred. Money. All the things we've just been talking about. But I hope, I pray, that you won't turn to the powers of this world that you would trust in the power of Christ. That you would see the power given to you today in your baptism. 
your acceptance into the body of Christ, that you need not fear, that you need not fret, that even death need not have any power over you. But you have the power to love. Love the unlovable. You have the power to forgive and to give grace and to show Christ to so many people. Oh, my dear son, you can truly grow in power in Jesus. And then you have no reason to be afraid. And that's the power we give you over to this morning. We entrust you to the one who was crowned with a crown of thorns and suffered on our behalf. May you follow in his footsteps. And as a father, that's a hard thing to say, knowing the footsteps of Christ led him to the cross. But I do so in sure hope and assurance that there, even at the cross, especially at the cross, the power of Christ, the glory of God is revealed to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in these moments, we seek to be your people. We seek to open ourselves to the power of Christ, that we would be people that trust in Jesus Christ, the man who wears the crown of thorns, the one who suffered on our behalf, and we pray that we would have enough trust and grace and commitment to you that we could follow in his footsteps that we may bear the power of Christ in this world. Speak to us now in these moments of response. May we receive your grace through the elements of communion and we find a deeper walk with you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As our servers come down to present communion to us, you don't have to be a member of our church to partake in communion. All that we ask is that you have made a commitment to place your life in the care trust of Jesus Christ. That you've given yourself over to him and made a decision to live in the power of Christ only. And we invite you to the table. It is open to everyone. Do you hear that? And the power of God, the power of the Almighty is available to everyone. It's a free gift. Come up and partake of the bread and the cup and the grace and the power of God is yours entrusted to you to go and live out in the world. May we receive this grace and cherish it. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and having broken it, he gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat, remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you. Take, drink, whenever you do, in remembrance of me. We invite you to take time to pray in your seat. We invite you to take time to pray in an altar about anything. When you're ready, come down your side aisle, partake of the elements, take a time of prayer. I'm here to anoint you on behalf of anything you'd like to be anointed then you're going to turn to your seats at the middle aisle. Come receive the grace of God. Let us continue to pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not forgotten about us, that you have not left us to, or to the powers of this world, that you have not left us vulnerable and afraid, but that you have come to rescue us and redeem us. That our lives don't need to be held hostage by sin and hatred and evil, but that you lay down your life to free us. So I pray that we as your people would embrace that freedom, that we would embrace that joy, and we would do so by letting the power of Christ flow through us, that that would be the only power that we, Asheville First Church of the Nazarene, trust, that we put our hope in, that we live out, that we would show the true power of Christ to all those who come in contact with us, that they would see the love and the forgiveness and the hope and the freedom that we have. I, I pray for those who are struggling or hurting today. Uh, would your hand be upon them? For those who are recovering from surgery, Lord, uh, we pray for Brother Richard, who's still laboring in the hospital. Would your hand be upon him? Encourage him, we ask, and bring healing to his body, Lord. Uh, we pray for others who are battling illness uh, or sickness or the flu, Lord. May you strengthen their bodies, we pray. We lift up those who are mourning today, and we think of Miss Rose, and she still mourns the loss of her husband, and Harvey, and the father, Lord, and, and we a church, one of our core members, and we pray that you would comfort them, comfort us, Lord, and help us to live in his legacy. Uh, we thank you uh, for the community of faith that we get to carry these burdens with one another, and I pray that we would do so more every day. For those who are dealing with family strife, uh, for divisions, uh, maybe the threat of divorce or just a pain in their family. Lord, I pray that you bring healing in their lives. May, may you give us the strength and the power to bring reconciliation and peace to our loved ones. Lord, would you work through us as your people here at the church through our ministries. Lord, would you bless the recovery groups that meet here on a weekly basis. Uh, help us to continue to help people find freedom from addiction. Bless the preschool, Lord, as, as they are in a very busy time. Be with Peggy and the teachers, we pray, and give them strength and grace to plant the seeds of faith in the little ones. We thank you for our food pantry, and we just pray that we would be faithful in all of our ministry as a church, that we would advance your kingdom and represent the power of Christ. Lord, we lift up those uh, in leadership, those uh, local leaders, state leaders, national leaders, Lord, may you give them wisdom and grace to carry out their duties and help us to treat other nations rightly, promote justice and peace wherever we can. We lift up our district superintendent, Greg Mason. We pray that you bless his ministry, Lord, and guide his steps, we ask. Be with all the Christians around the world who are suffering, who may be in danger because of their witness to you. We pray that you would protect them and that you would empower your kingdom to advance that we may represent Christ all around the world, all peoples, all nations, all races, all tongues, that we would have the power of Christ. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for the gift of new life in Desmond. We commit him to you, and may he lead us in faith and love in the years to come. Help us to pray as you taught us, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Church family, would you stand with me? Thank you for being a part of this special day for our family. But I pray that as you leave here, you may not feel powerful. You may feel weak. You may feel humble. But no, it is in you God has chosen for the fullness of the power of Christ to dwell. So may you trust in that power and may that be the sole foundation of your life in the days to come.